Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. As this morning we conclude this important letter that Paul writes to his son in the faith, Timothy. In the heat and in the midst of battle in pastoral ministry. Follow along with me. Verse 20. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Take a quick look at our society at large as it exists today, the American populace in general, and uh, one of the effects of postmodernism It's pretty obvious we have established a culture, a society of entitlement, a society that rejects truth, a society that ironically demands peace without realizing that peace can only come through the disciplinary hand of government to ensure peace, namely that exists through war efforts. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, that God has not given the governing authorities a sword for no reason. The sword brings peace. But in truth, although that kind of characterizes our society today, not kind of, it in fact does, at the end of the World War II, an anti-war sentiment began to increasingly grow along with that sense of entitlement that reached its peak then, uh, in the baby boomer generation anyway, during the hippie movement, and Vietnam War protests. And ever since that time, we've seen a massive increase in outcome-based reporting. You all know what that is, what that looks like. And anti-war, politically driven media, education system, and general culture at large that has pursued, established, and continued the same trend. It's carried on that groundwork that was laid in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. It's relatively common these days to see anti-war marches and yard signs was unfortunately malinformed, and simplistically pithy rhetoric such as love, not war, or war is not the answer. And although Paul did say in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, you understand that that verse begins with an adverbial conditional clause, if possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So before we can subscribe to something like... uh, something like, war is not the answer, we really should be asking to what question? War is not the answer to what question? So the only reasons you can subscribe 
to that kind of position. That war is not the answer categorically is if you believe that there's nothing worth fighting for. And so if you can honestly say no moral, no principle, no property, no life is worth fighting for, then you can honestly say war is not the answer. But for the Christian, we can never come to that position. We can never come to the position that the battle over truth is not worth fighting over. And as Paul closes out his letter and gives Timothy his final words, he urgently reminds him that Christianity isn't a lightweight religion full and bound together in unity with a bunch of Hallmark card kind of pithy statements and cliches. There is an urgency in the fight for truth and sound doctrine. There's no room for complacency. There's no room for the anti-war rhetoric that we see from our society at war at large and, and might expect even from a godless culture. But this whole letter that we've been working through in Paul's letter to Timothy reads like a combat field manual. It is a job description It tells us how we're supposed to lead the church. It tells us what a shepherd is supposed to do. It informs us what his responsibilities are. It tells us what the church is supposed to look like. And it tells us how you and I are to fight for holiness. And we've established already, and Paul's going to actually reinforce that principle in our closing argument in verse 21, that the fight for holiness and the fight for truth does not rest exclusively in the confines of pastoral ministry, but it is your responsibility too. Tells us what holiness is, how the church is supposed to act. And in keeping with that, it tells us the threats to holiness. And it's not that we love to fight, it's not that we love to fight. And it's not for love of a fight that we are characterized. But we are characterized by a love for truth. And because we love truth, we fight for the truth. It's not that we love to be right or have a sense of thrill from opposition or take pride in our own martyrdom. Quite frankly, fighting, inciting violence, even in rhetoric in the context of the local church, has become a means of establishing yourself and creating a grunge culture Christianity, a massive following that comes along with it. And so pastors have become edgy and hard-nosed, if you will, for the sake of being cool. It's cool to act tough. But from the time you were saved and enlisted into the church, you've been called to arms because the enemy has declared war against God and will continue to fight against His truth until our Lord returns in victory. And since Paul said earlier in chapter 3, verse 15, that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, that places you at the front line of the attack. 
And there's an incredible amount of responsibility that goes with it. The pillar and the support of the truth is what you are. And it's the truth that is mercilessly being assaulted. But many of us care very little about that responsibility. Care very little about it. Others of us have maybe just grown tired of it. Just grown weary. And you're tired of the adversity and the hardship and the conflict that comes to you from standing firm in the word of truth. The division that it causes between those who affirm the truth and those who do not. As you confront them in love. And others of you perhaps don't even know where the battle is. And rather than joining ranks with the church, you spend your time gawking where the line is weak rather than rushing to fill the line. And may God have mercy on your soul. For the manner that you judge, you will be judged. But regardless of where you are, Paul gives his final word to Timothy in combat. And it's healthy and wise for us to remember that we, as members of the body of Christ, have been drafted into this spiritual warfare. Fight for the truth. Paul wants Timothy to remember just these two final commands in order to fight well for the truth. And he tells him, first of all, what he is to guard, and secondly, what he is to avoid. And if you want this alliterated, because I've avoided alliteration over the last couple of weeks, you might be able to say, uh, Paul gives Timothy two commands that start with a P. If it helps you remember, then fine. I won't argue with you. That's not my quarrel. But if you want to say Paul's final exhortation to Timothy is to preserve and to protect the gospel, or rather, actually, the order is in reverse. It is to protect and preserve, then uh, that would be in keeping with what Paul is saying as well. But Timothy is to guard, and Timothy is to avoid. The first is an imperative command. It comes very simply. Guard what has been entrusted to you. The second is given to us in an adverbial clause, and um, but it still carries the imperatival force of the main verb. In other words, you can understand both guard and avoid as imperative commands. You all know what an imperative command is. It means it's not optional. Even though uh, avoid, grammatically speaking, here is also descriptive of how we are to guard. And so that is helpful. But we are to guard. We are to guard. But you sense the strong emotional interjection, I hope, even just reading, as we begin by reading this final paragraph, don't you? We come across and we're somewhat struck by Paul's personableness. Concluding the letter, Oh, Timothy. That stands out. Oh, Timothy stands out. I think, well, it, I mean, he's talking to Timothy, right? But the only two other times that Paul uses Timothy's name in a direct address like that is when he greeted him in his opening salutations in his first and second letter. 
Otherwise, Paul doesn't use the, the, the vocative case here like this. He doesn't, he doesn't make a direct address to Timothy in the context of the letter. Timothy knows he's talking to him. He knows uh, Paul's sincerity of heart. But now all of a sudden, there's a, there's a weight. There's a serious uh, seriousness in tone. And we understand why. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Some of your translations might read, guard the deposit. And that is a good translation. That, that conveys the right idea. That, that's a very common phrase, but, but very sui generis, uh, if you will, at the same time. Very common but sort of its own class by itself. It was commonly used, but it had an uncommon weight behind it. This was a statement of commitment. And for those who would picture Timothy as some sort of weak-kneed leader, some sort of near-defecting, soft-spoken, ill, somewhat intimidated by those leaders threatening the integrity of the church kind of personality, this word in trust or deposit unravels that presupposition. Communicated a high level of trust. It inferred something of extremely high value. And you didn't just drop this thing off at your local gas station and hope that it would be there in the morning. Or just shove it under your doormat for safekeeping. For that matter, this word deposit, this word entrust, wouldn't even be something that you would, uh, you would drop off at a bank that was unresearched, unfamiliar to you. When you granted stewardship of something very special, a highly valued, treasured object, whatever it was, you only did that when you really, personally, trusted someone. You knew that they were going to protect it. And you expected them to keep your deposit safe and to return it in the condition that it was entrusted to them. In other words, they would be faithful with their responsibility, the responsibility that they had been given. And Paul used a similar idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to exhort the church to stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that they were taught, communicating the same idea. Stand firm to the traditions that you had been taught. And there's obviously nothing that's more important, nothing more valuable, nothing more critical to protect than the purity of the gospel message. Sadly, though the gospel has been given to us in a platinum ring full of diamonds set in it that has been exchanged out by many from those little cheap 25-cent toys that you can stick a quarter in for and wind, and here it comes out. And a six-year-old will give it to his girlfriend and she'll say, wow, he really cares. Young men, you can try that when you want to get engaged someday. 
probably that girl is not going to respond, that's okay. I know his intent, his motivation is pure. He loves me. So I'll make do with a plastic ring. Now, if some of you have a plastic engagement ring, all is well with you. That's not my quarrel either. But for the sake of the illustration, you understand the problem. When something of high value is exchanged for something cheap, and the message that is being proclaimed from pulpits, or the lack thereof, is a gospel of cheap, easy grace. That is without cost or value. Paul makes sure Timothy understands that it is of highest priority to protect the value and purity of the gospel. And so here, there is a guardianship to protect the integrity of God's truth. And that is something, quite frankly, very few are genuinely concerned about. And that is the great scandal of the contemporary church. For all that the contemporary church is, all that we've said about it, its weaknesses and its strengths, the fact that we are so little concerned to protect the integrity of God's truth is our great scandal. Every other issue is of secondary importance. Every other issue, in fact, corrects itself if we have the truth right. Every other issue takes a back seat to the importance of interpreting and implying God's word the right way. Misinterpretation and misapplication is inexcusable for us. The scriptures are clear. They're not written in some kind of mystic ambiguity so that we can never really understand what God expects. A couple of weeks ago, I received a scathing criticism about our church just being that, oh, you are all just so oh holy Bible-thumping people. But I'll tell you, it wasn't the criticism that broke my heart. What broke my heart was that this Christian thought that was a criticism. There is such a disregard for the Word of God. Some have even called it Bible idolatry. Worshipping the Bible over against worshipping God. It's nothing short of alarming to us. And there are quite a number of prominent and popular pastors today who are nothing short of hell-bent on undermining and destroying the intrinsic authority of the biblical text. One popular minister whose books sit in every Christian bookstore. Son of another very popular minister who has his own 
difficulties, but at least his father firmly upheld the inerrancy of Scripture, recently said, if the Bible is the foundation of your faith, here's the problem. It is all or nothing. Well, that sounds like a problem to me. Because when Jesus said, if any man wants to be worthy of my disciple, he must reject all and follow me. Whether it's his mother, father, brother, sister. To follow me. That sounds a little bit like an all or nothing proposition. But nevertheless, if the Bible is the foundation of your faith, here's the problem. It is all or nothing. That's just it. If you believe, he says, in the childish error, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, then your religion is nothing but a house of cards. And so for him... Christianity's biggest problem is an alleged unwarranted reliance on the Bible. And that is complete foolishness. Complete foolishness. You might be familiar with Psalm 138 too. Speaking to this issue, and speaking to the issue of alleged Bible worship or Bible idolatry, David tells us the substance behind and reason for his worship of the true God. Or his house of cards religion, you might say. He says, I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have exalted, you have magnified your word above all your name. God exalts His own word before all His own name. Many have betrayed God's word that's been entrusted to them. Another pastor, this pastor I like, Uh, says this, Scripture is the self-revelation of God. This is all we know about God. If you pervert this, you pervert God. And if you say you believe it and don't live it, then you say God isn't serious. Don't take Him seriously. Don't take His Word seriously. It really doesn't matter that much. And that, in its end result, amounts to nothing short of hypocrisy. That's the result. You corrupt the treasure that has been entrusted to you, and you walk out a hypocrite. You don't return it to the master in the condition that it was given to you. You've been proven to be an unfaithful slave. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, that what distinguished him and other true spokesmen for God, the other apostles, and what is also going to be true then for every true spokesman for God that would follow is that they were not like many others 
who corrupt the word of God. Isn't that interesting? Because it's, it's, it's not that they propose that they're feeding uh, the word of God to you that's in question. They come to you as though they are. They come to you, we said earlier, as a wolf in sheep's clothing. And what that meant was, it's not as though we have an image of a sheep that has a wolf's cloak over his back. A wolf in sheep's clothing was a wolf who distinguished himself as a prophet. The sheep's clothing was the one who wore, uh, was the attire of the prophet. So they were distinguishing themselves. They are saying, we are leaders of the true church. We we present biblical truth to you. But in reality, the truth that they present is not the truth that has been given to us by our Master. It's corrupted. It's polluted. It's wretched. It's deceptive because it's erroneous just enough to condemn souls to hell. But what marks a true minister of God is that he does not corrupt the Word of God. They just give it as it was given to them. They don't seek to improve it. They don't seek to make it uh, conform to cultural values or make it palatably acceptable and so on and so forth. MacArthur, who is the, uh, the pastor I quoted earlier, in case any of you are wondering, He also continues, the Bible that you hold is the most sacred thing in your hands. And it is the most sacred thing your hands will ever touch in this world. Is it? Then why are we trying to change it? Or why do we speak diminutively of it? Or speak as though it doesn't have authority. Or for many of us, simply act like it doesn't have authority in our lives. Simply won't submit to it. You've been given something to keep. You've been entrusted with something tremendously important. And we're to speak the truth and contend earnestly for the faith. Divide it with integrity. Righteously. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says to be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Finish it. You can finish it. That's right. Rightly dividing the word of truth. Spudatso. Might be one of my favorite words in the Greek New Testament just because it's fun to say. Diligent. It means to be painfully zealous. Did you know that? Say, so how would I know that? I wasn't looking in a lexicon. No, but spudazzo, be diligent to present yourself a workman that does not need to be ashamed. What does that look like? One who rightly divides the word of truth. You are painfully zealous to divide the word of truth rightly. Are you? Because you understand, I'm not stretching the text to say that this is what a workman who is approved of God looks like. Whoever else you might say you are and whatever else you might say you do. 
Are you painfully zealous to cut the word of God straight, to accurately handle the word of truth, and painfully zealous that the word of truth is handled accurately? Or is it more about your denomination or your tradition? Or more about your family or your friendships or structure or order or programs or music or what kind of fellowship or how much or how big or how small a church is or how interesting the pastor is, thankfully not, or how well he dresses, no comment. Or in our society, how poorly? Because that seems to be trending now. Or how many application points he makes? The most important thing about a church has to do with how it handles the Word of God. How it holds it up in reverence and desires to see it cut straight. Discernible reverence. Discernible care. We can't be steadfast guardians of the truth if we're eager to compromise and integrate our worldviews or personal convictions or pagan and atheistic psychologies or marketing strategies with the truth. I find it interesting that Paul says in our second point that these things are what we're supposed to avoid. These things are what we avoid. Avoid integrationism. Avoid worldly principles and philosophies. Avoid the wisdom of men. But the most egregious crime against God is to distort and mishandle His Word. And that's what we are to avoid. We are to avoid those who distort and mishandle His Word. We are to avoid those who would say things like, well, if you believe the Bible for what it says, I mean, that undercuts the truth ultimately, and that sets up your church like a house of cards. I mean, the greatest lie and the greatest threat that we can possibly tell our children is that uh, Jesus loves them because the Bible tells them. That is absolutely ludicrous. And in fact, many, another Old Testament scholar, in fact, maintains the position that if we, if we don't believe science over the Bible and reinterpret the text of Scripture in accordance with what science teaches us, as though there was no matter of interpretation in scientific data either, But nevertheless, if we don't change the text to conform to science, then we're nothing more than a cult. So all of a sudden, the biblical text serves a submissive role to our sciences. And so whether you're rejecting the authority of God's Word on any level, no matter how popular you are, Scriptures are quite clear what we are to do. I mean, that person is to be avoided. They are compromising the text. They're walking down the path of theological liberalism. That's what that is. And they bring the church with it. Largely because we won't do what's right. 
These are people that are in the church. People who maybe even otherwise have the gospel right. Sowing these lies and undermining truth. And they are to be put out of the church. Our duty is to remove them for the sake of God's flock and for their own souls. The kind of doctrine they advocate is inexcusable and it's unacceptable. And quite frankly, they wouldn't have the platforms they do in the evangelical church if we are consistent to do that. Paul says, as though it were unclear, avoid worldly and empty chatter. Avoid it. And the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. The Black Death was a deadly global bubonic plague epidemic that struck Europe and Asia in the 14th century. You're all very familiar with that. We still sing the nursery uh, rhyme in association with that as a memorial to it. Uh, Ring around the rosy, pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. It's a tribute to the Black Death. Europeans had heard rumors about the great pestilence, as it was known at that time, for, for quite a while. This great pestilence that was creeping its way west from Asia. But the plague finally arrived when 12 ships docked at the Sicilian port of Messina. And when people gathered at the docks to greet the sailors and unload the cargo, they were shocked and horrified to find that most of the sailors were dead. And of those who were alive, they were gravely ill, and they had these black boils oozing with blood and pus covering their bodies. Of course, Sicilian authorities immediately ordered the death ships, as they were so called, to leave port and exit the harbor. Or... They contaminated the rest, but it was too late. And over the next five years, more than a third of the continent's population would die from the plague. Over 20 million people. In some cases, it was so quick that even some who appeared perfectly healthy when they went to bed were found dead in the morning. Others lingered halfway between life and death for days in misery and agony. And of course... Like I said, we are still familiar with that historical context. If you look at the history of humanity, you will even see the, uh, the increase in population and all of a sudden a massive drop in the population of the world in the 14th century because of how deadly the disease was. And yet, ironically, the response that the Sicilian authorities had, as soon as they realized what was going on, ordered the ships to get out, is the response that we are to have in the church against that threat that is far greater than any plague, any disease that has wreaked havoc in the world. Worldly doctrine and empty chatter 
are infinitely more deadly than any disease that we've ever experienced in mankind. Rather than avoiding worldly energy chatter like the plague, we seem to take glee in running toward any novel idea outside the realm of truth. As long as it's sugar-coated, as long as it's cute, as long as it's cool. I would remind you of 1 Timothy 4. Because many churches are a safe haven for demonic doctrine. Because that's how Paul sizes up this stuff in 1 Timothy 4. Demonic doctrine. And many churches have taken pride in calling themselves safe havens for that errant demonic doctrine. In the name of acceptance, tolerance, and where truth is minimally existent, Ironically, the antidote to spiritual death. Where false knowledge is held up as a superior virtue. Pseudonumos, that might be better translated as this stuff that is falsely named knowledge. Paul is making sure that we understand that this isn't knowledge It's just called that, but it isn't. And the people who propagate this stuff are enemies of the gospel. They're not servants of it, and just acknowledgement that there are, in fact, enemies of the truth is its own victory for some. And that's why, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, that this stuff sp- spreads like gangrene. It spreads like the Black Plague. We heap up these kind of teachers that tickle our ears. And we have a duty to refuse to allow them to dock and contaminate the church. We have a duty to refuse to even let them in. And many buy into it because we don't, and they fall away from the faith. Turn to John, Second John rather. Turn to Second John, starting in verse 8. There's only one chapter, in case you were confused about that. Second John, verse 8, I want to remind you of what John writes here. He says, watch yourselves, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. That's a pretty strong statement. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. We haven't done that. And so 2 Peter 2 says, The false prophets also arose from among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed 
They will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Now, that, kind of, that kind of blows up the other yard sign that we see, doesn't it? Love, not war. Because if we are not fighting for the truth, then many will follow in the sensuality of these men and be eternally destroyed. What does that sound like to you? And that sounds a lot like what we've been reading in this final chapter of 1 Timothy, doesn't it? In their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 verse 9, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. But back in, uh, back in verse 21, I don't want you to understand, misunderstand what Paul says when he says, some have professed these worldly and empty babble and pseudo-intellectual arguments that they hold up as knowledge, that they name as knowledge, and uh, thus have gone astray from the faith means that they lost their salvation. That is not what Paul is saying. These individuals have not lost their salvation, but they have lost salvation. You understand the difference? They haven't lost their salvation, but they've lost salvation. Because they've rejected the true gospel. So they don't get saved. They have lost salvation. And these are deadly consequences for their souls. And for those who are truly saved and are weakened by it, the true fruit of their ministry will be weakened by it because then that is going to be affected and those souls won't be saved. Don't lose your salvation. But you lose the power in the gospel because you're giving a gospel that is, as Paul says in, to the church in Galatia, that is no gospel at all. Now listen, I set you up this way in our beginning. I want you to look at this final closing phrase in verse 21. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. In English, whether the second person pronoun is singular or plural is determined by the context. And since we began this paragraph in verse 20, with, uh, O Timothy, we know that's singular, and we might then think, well, uh, since O Timothy obviously is singular, Paul is speaking to Timothy in verse 21 as well. But like in Spanish or French or many other languages, there is a different ending, and so there's no confusion in the Greek text. And the pronoun in verse 21 is plural. It's plural. You have one or two of you from the south. We have a couple of you from Ohio, and you, I know you pretend to be from the South. That's right, I forgot Mr. Wood is from the South too. I mean Ohio. They say y'all, right? Around here we say yous or you guys, whatever it is. I'll admit, y'all sounds a little better. 
But that's the idea. You, plural. Grace be with you, plural. And so we remember that, yes, in the immediate sense, the whole letter is written to Timothy. By application, then, the whole letter to Timothy is is written to church leadership, too. We get that. And that's why it's been grouped in what has been called the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. But as Paul closes, he makes sure that you understand that this is for the church. This is for you. This is not just a manual for leadership. It's not just a manual for pastors. It's not just a manual for Timothy and Ephesus. It's a letter that is as much for them as it is for you and for me. And so, of course... That isn't just a pastoral duty then. That's a responsibility that's been entrusted to every Christian to protect the truth. To guard the truth. To prevent any kind of inroad. To break apart our line. Defending God's Word. So we want you to join in the fight for sound doctrine and the purity of God's truth and God's gospel because it's important to Paul and it's important to Christ. And if you've sort of waffled for a time as to what you're doing here and and where you are going to be, you need to determine and decide. What are you going to do? You're going to join the ranks, fight for truth. You're going to continue in complacency. And allow the, continue, the enemy to continue to build his barracks. In order that he can continue to deceive many. You do realize that we intend to win this battle over truth. And that you have to meet the enemy's fervor. With greater fervency if you intend to win. Certainly fights with fervor. He's been doing it with the fall, since the fall. He's got endurance. We need to fight lies with truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this text that kind of brings us to a complete close. This letter that you have written to Timothy and to us summarizes all that we have learned, the importance and priority of honoring your word rightly, esteeming you highly. And because we esteem you highly, we esteem your word. And if there's anything that we want, Lord, it is that we we are known for that simple thing. It's those who esteem your word steadfast and fight for the truth. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, 
would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.